2: This episode of See Here is brought to you by Superstar World (music) Premiere. Welcome to episode 100 of the See Here podcast. 100! And people said we'd never get to 10, but here we are at 100, eight and a half years after we started this podcast in 2014. Episode 1 was myself, our beloved Tim Merrill, who I hope will be back before too long, and Wendy Freeman. Episode 2, Bernie Stickwell joined us as part of the regular crew. So uh, good afternoon to you, uh, Bernard Stickwell.
3: Hello, Morris. It seems like... A lot, a lot longer than eight and a half years.
2: <laughs> All these other podcasts, like the ones hosted by our two guests for this time, they do a hundred episodes within I don't know like three... a
3: week or two, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're machines.
2: Yeah. Frankly, we're the <laughs> we're the salaries to their Beethoven and Mozart. I think so. Welcoming back for his I don't know whatever of appearances, but he's been on a few. Mr. Mike, Water of the projection booth? Welcome back, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much for being here. I'm surprised. Actually, isn't a film that you had previously covered in the projection booth. We'll have to do it projection booth style, I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sounds good to okay, me. You, you ready balance. for like yeah, for five hours plus uh, 25 interviews. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, well, yeah.
2: I, no, I couldn't get any interviews, so we'll have to go with the five <laughs> hours. And making his debut eight and a half years after we started, Mr. Will Smith of the GGTMC, that is The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Welcome, Will.
4: It is an honor and a pleasure to be here after all these years. Thank you, sir. Uh, thank you very much
2: for uh, being a part of this. This is very, very exciting to both of us. So I should say, I haven't actually announced, although you listeners out there will know what we're covering because it says so in the show notes. We are going to be talking about the Milos Forman film, Amadeus. A little obscure for this show, but we thought we'd want to recommend something that maybe you haven't seen before. 1984, uh, Amadeus. We'll be back after I played the trailer to talk about mediocrity, religion, jealousy, envy, and That sort of stuff. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to See here, episode 100 Are we
1: going to appall you with something confidential
2: and disgusting? Let's hope so.
1: Because that is what you really like: unconfessed crimes of buried wickedness. If that is what brings you to us, the prospect of hearing horrors, you
5: shall not go unrewarded. I don't believe it. The whole city is talking. You hear it all over. What a story! What a scandal. What a comedy. What a tragedy. Incredible. I don't believe it. Who can believe it? What horrors have you heard? Tell
1: us. Tell us. Tell us at once.
5: Tell us about Wolfgang.
3: Amadeus. Mozart.
1: Mozart. Mozart! How good is he, this Mozart?
4: He's remarkable.
2: He's an unprincipled, spoiled, conceited brat.
4: I'm a vulgar man. But I assure you, my music is not.
5: He is divinely inspired. He is arrogant, vulgar, obscene. He creates music for the gods. He is passionate. He burns with fire. He is an angel. He is a devil. He claimed he'd been poisoned. Some said
1: he accused a man. Some said the man was Salieri. Salieri? Salieri. Salieri. I don't
5: believe it all the same. Could it be possible? Did Salieri do it after all? Did he murder Amadeus? Amadeus, the man, the music, the magic, the madness, the murder, the mystery, the motion picture. Amadeus, everything you've heard is true.
2: And we're back from break. You're listening to See Here Podcast, episode 100. We're proudly part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcasts. And this time we have a very important music film, Amadeus, a little film that maybe you've heard of, directed by one Milos Forman. The writer was Peter Schaffer, who based it on his play that came out, I think, originally in 1979, debuted in London. And I read something that even though he was uncredited, that the film as a co-writer was Zdenek Mahler, who was somehow a couple of generations down the track related to Gustav Mahler, the classical composer. So I found that incredibly interesting. Uh, the film stars F. Murray Abraham as Antonio Salieri, Tom Hulse as Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, Elizabeth Berridge as his wife Constanza Mozart. They're really the three central actors, characters in the film. But I think it's also worth mentioning two other actors. Jeffrey Jones as Emperor Joseph II, who I remember more as Criswell from uh, Ed Wood. <laughs> Very different role here. And Simon Callow, who I sort of remember more from Four Weddings and a Funeral. He was the funeral. Spoiler alert. <laughs> anyway, we'll come to talk more about the actors later on. So IMDB says that this film is the life, success, and troubles of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart as told by Antonio Salieri, the contemporaneous composer who was insanely jealous of Mozart's talents and claimed to have murdered him Mm, a, a murder mystery will we're doing this film actually because of you because about six months ago while I was thinking what are we going to do for a 100th episode of See Here we need something big we need something important and you posted in the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema Facebook page that you had only just watched this film for the first time and you are a man who has seen one or 10,000 films I thought wow he hasn't seen this one that's a great film and that's a good excuse to get him on the show so I want to start off by asking you a couple of questions so what Prompted the watch. Where do you stand on the films of Milosh Foreman in general, and what are your feelings about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart as a composer?
4: So the watch itself, it had kind of been swirling around my subconscious, I guess, and I don't know. I'd been driving to work or something, and it popped up, and. It had just been a list of shamer. I mean, as someone who loves film, we all have those films that it just, we haven't gotten to for one reason or the other. And I felt like I needed to end that. Every now and then you muster up the uh, determination to do so. And I thought, I gotta watch this. I absolutely have to watch this. Uh, and thankfully uh, I did at that time. Yeah, as we'll hear here, the, it was quite the revelation uh, in spite of reading all the press clippings about what it ahead of time. So yeah, that was that. As far as uh, Milos Forman's work, Obvious statement, tremendous filmmaker. I'll say this, as much as he is celebrated, I feel like sometimes he still flies under the radar a bit when we talk about the great filmmakers uh, of the era, right? We tend to celebrate a lot of the new wave, the American films or the, the French wave that predates them. But looking at his, his work uh, as a whole, it's he's got a tremendous body of work. And to do something like this, when you see this film, not to mention his other films, but... What an achievement to pull something like this off as seamlessly as he does, right? It's uh, it's incredible. And that's a nice segue into Mozart. So I love music. We all love music. Uh, only probably robots don't love music. In saying that, I like classical, but I certainly admire it a bit from afar. This is where I feel a little bit uh, intellectually underdressed compared to my three esteemed colleagues today. but. Watching this gives you such a profound appreciation for the brilliance of Mozart and of classical compositions on the whole. And I think that's one of the greatest gifts of the film, that it gives us the gifts of Mozart and the, the beauty and, and reverence of classical music as a whole, right? It's, uh, it's, it's incredible. And he was an
2: obvious statement. So, Mike, I turn to you. The, uh, and one thing I learned, like in the last couple of weeks, that so you're a clarinet player. Yeah. And you'd played in, it was a clarinet quartet
0: years ago. This is true? Well, yeah, that was just for like a competition that we're doing at, uh, I can't remember if that was in Interlochen or where that was, but yeah, uh, played clarinet in high school. I grew up playing piano. I think I started lessons when I was about five. And I grew up in a house with a lot of classical music. My mom listened to a lot of classical, so... Yeah, I saw this movie when I was 12 years old, I think, the very first time. I definitely saw it theatrically. I don't remember if I had been familiar with One Flew or Cuckoo's Nest at this time or not, but I definitely watched that quite a bit when I was uh, younger and especially in high school. But yeah, I've been a fan of Foreman's and of Mozart's for a long time, so this was a great combination of the two. And uh, revisiting it, it, I mean, it's funny because I just watched this again – for the first time in a long time i'd say about a year ago and broke it out again last night and wow it still just floors me every single time i watched the director's cut this time which i don't remember i think that's the only version that's
2: been available since the early 2000s without sort of giving away terribly much yet but i think this is one of those rare instances in my mind where the directors cut the extra footage actually is justified not just uh, wallpaper there's one key scene that we'll get to that i knew straight away i couldn't remember it had been so long since i would seen the film i thought oh this scene was not in the original pg mm-hmm. version of the film mm-hmm. but it added so much to right. our understanding of salieri
0: yeah i was okay with that i don't know if the kenneth mcmillan uh stuff was necessary i mean i loved kenneth mcmillan so much and and I loved him in Ragtime, which was the film that Foreman made previous to this, which I also saw theatrically. Like, Jeez, my mom took me to some weird movies when I was a kid. But another three-hour epic, yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, I don't know if the kind of Macmillan stuff, especially the second time he appears, if that works that well. But I agree with you about the extra Salieri uh, and Costanza stuff. Okay,
2: Bernie, I don't think we've ever in our all our years of talking about cinema that we've talked about this film or we've talked about classical music representation in film so i want to know mm-hmm. where do you stand on classical music in general and what were your recollections of seeing this for the first I, I presume that this wasn't your first time seeing the film
3: this is actually my second viewings but my first viewing was literally decades ago so it's very interesting though a lot of scenes as soon as the scene started i thought yeah i remember this i remember this and it was amazing how much of it i did remember without remembering if that makes sense you know but i'm kind of with will on this in that i can certainly appreciate and admire classical music but i am not a buff by any means and so my only real sort of knowledge of mozart is the kind of stuff that everybody Mm. knows a lot if not all of the music in this is extremely familiar purely just because it's mozart and you know you you grow up with that stuff whether you uh seek it out or not mm-hmm. it's just there as far as Foreman goes I would not say again I, I'm not a, a, a buff I've seen a number of his, his films obviously One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as, as Mike mentioned um, I only recently saw The Fireman's Ball um, oh, nice. which I thought was excellent really good and this is just you know it's is a masterly directed film Amadeus he's a very competent mature thoughtful director and you know I'll be uh, digging into his stuff A little more, I think, after revisiting Mm. this. I initially saw it, like I say, it's probably the best part of 20, 25 years ago. I'm pretty sure I caught it on TV. I didn't see it at the theatre and I did not see it on home video. But a lot of it stuck with me, even though I don't recall it as such. So it obviously made an impression. Returning to it, it's, spoiler alert, it's a great film. (laughs) So like you, Mike,
2: I grew up in a household where it was predominantly classical music is what my father had introduced into the household he was very very big into opera and we had this large classical record collection so i grew up like you did with a lot of this music on-the-record player playing in the house. Here's where I might get controversial and people are going to say we're not going to listen to this stupid podcast anymore. But I don't consider myself to have been, even back then, a great fan of Mozart. I mean, obviously, when you put out the fact that you know he was writing all this complex music from five years old, the man was a genius. There's no doubting that. But when I was growing up, I was listening more to the romantic era of music and I mean, look, we go and put everything under the classical umbrella. Mozart was part of what they call the classical era, which was, I think, you know, classified generally as the second part of the 1700s going into the early 1800s, and the Romantic era sort of bled into that. And I want to talk a little bit more about the difference between uh, the classicism versus Romanticism, but basically the sort of composers who I was really a huge fan of growing up, Beethoven, who sort of straddled that line. He broke all the compositional rules, Rahms, Chopin, Tchaikovsky, Saint-Saëns, Rimsky-Korsakov with his piece Scheherazade I think is one of the greatest pieces of classical music ever and that was more wildly more passionate everything about classical music as defined by what Mozart and Haydn were doing seemed to me to be far more proper maybe mathematical I mean I don't know what I'm saying here but it just seems so proper it, it wasn't passionate enough for me I, I mean look when i grew up obviously i was exposed to the music and the the 40th symphony is his most famous uh eine kleine Nachtmusik and my sister took me a number of times to see uh, the magic flute which i enjoyed but i hear a lot of stuff on the classical radio station over here and a lot of it seems a little bit twee to my ears going with that in mind when Amadeus started here in the cinemas in the 1980s I thought oh it's about Mozart I'm not going to go see that which was really really stupid but that's what happened and then shortly after I got married in the 90s Joanne who had watched the film countless times said to me oh, there's a production of the play taking place in town we should go and I was reluctant at first but then my sister jumped on board said no let's all go so all three of us went I wouldn't say my heart sank but I was thinking oh, really do I need to go see this play about Mozart and as soon as we came out I thought what a dickhead I was for not having seen the film because this play it was not just about the music but about all these great themes that I mentioned before and that was where the meat was that was you know what jealousy does to a man and I considered Mozart in the play and in the film to be something of an anti hero but we'll, we'll get to that but as all the great things. and musically even i came out realizing oh my goodness the requiem is a great work of genius and that's the thing it's all like listening to a lot of mozart's music in prep for this podcast over the weeks i discovered that whenever he wrote in a minor key i really enjoyed it but just everything that's in a major key sounded to me to be just too light and airy for my tastes. so after the play i went and found the film on vhs and yeah like you gents completely blown away now i was reading a whole bunch of things where people at the time and when i say people i mean like classical music historians were not so down with the film and before that with the play because of its historical inaccuracies and i I don't know whether you gents all had the chance to listen to the commentary from the dvd
1: Yeah, that was fantastic. Um,
2: Well, so Peter Schaffer has a lot to say about factual inaccuracy. And uh, I've got a bunch of thoughts on this, but I just sort of want to go around the table and ask in a historical film. And I'm not just necessarily talking about musical biopics, but in a dramatic representation of a real life event. How important is it to be historically accurate? Is it important? Is dramatic license okay, as long as the film is entertaining?
3: I think it's okay if the film works, and I think it's okay if the director, the writer, or whoever is you know, upfront about the fact that we have changed things here for dramatic license to make an interesting film. It can be a little bit of a thorny issue, maybe. I mean, I, I don't know 20, 30, 40 years' time, if it's not already happening... People are going to think the film of Titanic is actually what happened, you know. So it's—I mm-hmm. I don't know—it's a tricky one. I, I don't have any issue with it as long as it's done well, I guess. And certainly in this case, I mean, there was precedent for him changing it anyway. Was—was it, was it? forgive my knowledge here. Was it yes. Pushkin wrote? A play about the supposed animosity between the salieri and and, and mozart which uh, according to you know historical scholars wasn't actually a thing at all so peter schaefer you know obviously was aware of that and was riffing on that and was putting together his own vision and that's fine it works so i don't have an issue as long as it's handled well i guess
4: well i think we're talking about art not science mm-hmm. so I'm okay with some liberties being taken as long as there's a bit of transparency about it. You look at films like JFK or Apocalypto or Marie Antoinette, all take a lot of liberties with accuracy. And it's not to the detriment of the art, nor, of course, is it with this. I think it, it allows us to get immersed in the world. And, and it's almost like if you're a comic book reader, the what if stuff to a degree, right? A path gone here, a path gone there. And I have no problem with it, provided it's not being sold as actual factual, right? I mean, it's, it's, again, it's art, not science.
0: Yeah, it doesn't say based on a true story at the beginning of it. So I can understand why some people might think, oh, this is exactly what happened, but that's folly. If you think about that with anything, even some documentaries, you're in for a lot of trouble. I'm absolutely fine with the historical license. I mean, there was may not have been a rivalry between these two at all. And the opening of the movie with F. Murray Abraham as Salieri saying, I killed him, I killed him and tried to commit suicide. That could have just been a big old elaborate ruse on Salieri's part. I don't even think that Salieri tried to commit suicide ever. So, yeah, everything is subjective. Everything is just here for telling the best story that you possibly can. Mm -hmm. I think that Schiffer tried to stick to a certain facts as much as he could or use those as the basis of these things. And he can say, like, well, that came from Haydn and this came from here. And, you know, I read a letter and it actually said this. That's great. And I think Foreman brings a few things to the party as well. Yeah, as long as people aren't saying this is really what happened, there is no based on your story, I think we're okay.
2: In the commentary track, uh, Schaefer says in everything that he did, there was a kernel of truth. He actually was fessing up in this commentary, said, yeah, no, no, this bit didn't happen. You mentioned Haydn there, and Haydn had said, you are the greatest composer of whom I know, and that's something that Salieri mm-hmm. says in the film. So there you go, everything a kernel of truth. I- I'm going to sound hypocritical here because for years, I've been sort of thinking when I watch a film that... They take too many liberties. I thought, well, can't they just call it something else and make it about a different character and not purport this to be this person from history that we know of and then we can just enjoy for the story that it is. But like you, gents, because this is done so well, I don't see an issue here. And a director who, I confess, I've not seen a whole lot of his stuff. But I've seen two of his films. One is Tommy, and you know how I feel about Tommy, Mike. But the other one is Listermania.
3: Play your music whenever I can, but your politics don't interest me
2: and no one goes away thinking that Listermania is factually accurate because it's an exercise in style it's bringing the whole notion of idol worship into 20th century into the 1970s so everyone's presuming that yeah uh, roger daltrey is not really representing franz list accurately ken russell's not doing it but we think ah, uh, it's an exercise in style we can buy that but when something like amadeus or pick any other historical drama that you want to looks like it could be factually accurate and then you read out later on well no they took liberties with this this and that and certainly once again the music historians took issue with that when the play came out in 1979. Yeah, you can sort of understand why they sort of go down that path. But if the film had gone and said, yeah, Amadeus is told in the Twilight Zone. And the, the other thing is, I sort of was thinking is that Salieri as unreliable narrator, and he's definitely an unreliable uh-huh. narrator. So the uh-huh. whole thing, based on the kernel of truth, because yes, he's telling a true story, but he's embellishing it. From that perspective, it completely works. The only thing that's not historically accurate is that possibly is that Salieri never met up with a priest to confess his supposed murder of Mozart. <laughs> he brought up about the Pushkin play so Alexander Pushkin had written this play in 1840 so only whatever it was however many short lifetime after Mozart had been buried he had gone and supposedly said something to uh, the composer Carl Weber that he'd gone and murdered Mozart 10 years after that confession Alexander Pushkin goes and thinks hmm well maybe there's something to it let's see how I can drag this out into a play and there is his play which Schaeffer has said yes he knowledge that uh he was a big fan of and wanted to elaborate on that i think i watched the whole thing yeah what did you think about the contrast between how salieri and mozart are represented in that original play versus how the peter schaefer represents them and it's it's a two-hander really mostly it's a two-hander so and half, half an right. hour so.
0: yeah it was really tough to even draw the comparisons so there's the Pushkin play, there's the Schaefer play, version one, version two, and then what we see in the movie, and version one and version two in the movie script are vastly different at a lot of times and I can't remember if it was version two which played in the States, they eliminated the manservant or valet of uh, Salieri, so they made him the person in the mask, So which was an interesting choice, but yeah, I mean it. it to me it was very apples and oranges as far as the Pushkin versus the Schaefer play
2: at the cracks of Amadeus Salieri takes his time in trying to make Mozart's life miserable we only got half an hour of this yeah. short play and he's a lot more angry god why have you done this to me and he actually does murder Mozart. It seems to be less of a thing with Salieri that, God, why have you done this to me? Like it is in Amadeus. Religion plays a big part in Amadeus, which is seems to be going on Peter Shake's previous play, Equus. I don't know much about his other plays. I know those two. Religion playing a part in people's lives to their detriment seems to be a big theme in, at least in these two plays. But that didn't seem to be a thing here. It was just purely Salieri was insanely jealous of, what mozart did or could do salieri basically says in a soliloquy while mozart is out of the room words to the effect of if we allow mozart to stay alive then what does that leave future generations of composers we're all going to be mediocre because no one is as (laughs) no one is as good as him so he's basically saying mankind cannot improve it's gotten as good as it's going to get i have to murder him so our mediocrity will be the new high standard (laughs) There was a lot to work with. It's a really great play. And anyone who's listening to this, you can find it on YouTube. But I've actually found two versions. There's the Pushkin play and saw like five minutes of another one where they turned that into an opera. Um, Mm. uh, But I'm only going to vouch for the play. I didn't sit through the opera.
5: They're all musical idiots.
2: I just wanted to make note of a handful of the things. Just get this out of the way so we can keep talking about the film and the story as story where there were some of these factual inaccuracies, the liberties that worked better as drama. The central conceit for Salieri was that he'd remain celibate. He was talking to God like ever since he was a boy in the church saying,
1: I would offer up secretly the proudest prayer a boy could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music, and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return, I will give you my chastity, my industry, deepest humility every hour of my life
2: and in real life salieri was married with eight kids and had a mistress (laughs) so much for that but it's a great central conceit for it as a drama the other big thing was that going to the end of the film so it is true that mozart was very ill as he was basically composing the magic flute and the requiem at the same time two diametrically opposed pieces of work But he actually dictated the music to, well, I think it might have been one of Salieri's students, Francis Sussmeyer. It was never Salieri who'd come to his door disguised in a mask to remind Mozart of his father to commission him to do it. It was actually just this crazy guy who who sent out his servants, say, hey, I want people to write music and then I'll claim it as my own, which in the context of this film was exactly what Salieri wanted to do. He knew he was mediocre as a composer. So he thought, right, well, I'll get Mozart to write his own death music and then I will claim at his funeral that I wrote this grand piece of music in his honour before shoving him out to a pauper's funeral. So those are two... I'm sure many more little central conceits that are factually inaccurate, but sort of thinking about these sort of things, these are not the worst crimes in the world at all in terms of representation of the story. So actually, just sort of one thing I wanted—I'd forgotten about Mike. I wanted to say to you that with the Alexander Pushkin play, because it only goes for half an hour, and Salieri murders him, I was just sort of waiting for like a minute later for a man in a crumpled raincoat to come and say. um <laughs> 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 uh, Mr. Okay. Mr. Sal- Mr. Salieri, oh, oh, you're a great composer,
0: one of the best. Just one more thing. You say you wrote this Requiem for Mozart. <laughs> when did you start that, sir? <laughs> and had you had you considered that? Was it because he was sick? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then suddenly yeah. Salieri wants to help out Colombo, figure out the case. Oh, Le- Lieutenant, yes.
2: Do you know anything about music, Lieutenant? Oh, oh, I, I I played chopsticks when I was about five or six.
0: You know, I wanted to. But my wife's brother, he can play the piano like <laughs> nobody's business. He just sits down, and I think they call it playing by ear.
3: Yeah. you want uh you want william shatner playing sally area as well oh, in man. that situation <laughs> i
2: think i even looked up the russian for this yes which means one more thing <laughs> so any of the uh russian listeners out there can uh, write back and tell us uh, whether i got that correctly whether google translate Um, is correct on that (laughs) so another theme i wanted to talk to you gents about see if you had any thoughts on was uh, as i said theology plays a large part in this story salieri saying god if you give me this i will be your humble servant forever and then when he realizes that this vulgar little man this crass little man who farts and swears and tells dirty jokes is the vehicle for his genius. He says, you've made an enemy of me. I will murder your genius. See how you like that. In film representation, I can't think of anything. I'm sure there is, but I can't think of any films where the protagonist... Or the antagonist Makes a deal with God And turns against him It's always the devil I was speaking to someone tonight Who told me that They'd only just watched For the first time Bedazzled <laughs> One of my favorite comedies Of all time Based on Faust And it's always making a deal With the devil And Mike Because you're talking about The 1980s Twilight Zone On one of your million podcasts You remember there was a, Like a ten minute add-on To fill up the half hour Or something like that Where um, this mathematician Is working out a full formula on oh, a board he said yeah. like, i'd give anything i'd give my soul to be able to work this out and the devil comes play by was it ron glass from um ron from, glass you know, and sherman hensley yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh so another representation it's always in dramas making a deal with the devil this is one of the only times i think where i make a deal with god Do any of you gents know of any other films or drama where, where something similar has been done like
4: this? Off the top of my head, I can't. I was inclined to just maybe look it up and see. I, there has to be other examples. I would be stunned. Yeah, if The
3: um, Preacher comic book and I guess the TV show for however long that lasted, the central conceit of that was the, the main character, Jesse Custer, lost his well he didn't lose his faith in god he wanted to track down god and ask him what the heck he was doing so that was kind of the premise of that i don't recall whether he actually did come face to face with god in the end but maybe that's that's the closest thing that uh, that pops into my right. head
4: sorry a lot of times it's films that deal with that tend to look at just simply the relationship one has with god and their life and how their lives because of the relationship with god as opposed to a desperate deal that needs to be made or wants to be mm-hmm. made. yeah it tends to be more about faith you know as a an arc in their life or, or just uh, as it's woven into their life this glow right so yeah you get the desperate the desperation comes down from down south mm-hmm.
3: so. that's well that's absolutely what happens here isn't it because to all intents and purposes god doesn't make a deal with salieri it's quite apparent he doesn't because mozart comes along whatever salieri's Actions are. It doesn't affect God in any way at all. It's it's what Salieri is taking from his relationship with God. I
4: wonder how much of the uh, I guess obviously that it would have been a large part of the the Schaefer production, but I wonder how much of that was an allure for Foreman coming from a communist country where religion didn't play mm-hmm. a, a big part of his life. So for him to be almost an observer of this and look at it as the absurdity of someone. To think they were going to make this sort of a, a deal and to have their nose kind of rubbed in it perpetually uh, in society and just with their their ego with such a thin skinned man. I think there's a lot of delicious, mm-hmm. dry, comedic and dramatic material there that we see on the
0: screen as a result of that. I mean, this kind of thing with deals with God, it feels very uh, Abel Ferrara to me. It feels like something that would take place in like Bad Lieutenant or something. I'm mostly remembering Shilovsky's possession. Where where right. Isabella Johnny comes in and you get that POV shot almost from Christ up on the wall and her just v- venting to Christ and basically spiting him. So I know there's definitely a thread there, but I, I'm trying to remember an exact, I'm going to make a deal with God and then I'm going to curse him out when he, he uh, doesn't come through.
3: That's uh, an interesting connection as well. Possession to Amadeus. That's... <laughs>
2: It's good. In reference to what you were saying there, I think, Will, there was this documentary which Mike and I both saw like a couple of years ago. It was a documentary of Milos Foreman called Foreman vs. Foreman and there's a great line in there, I'm not sure I'm quite getting this right, but uh, Milosh had said I feel strongly when an individual is in conflict with an institution, and that could be political, it can be the church, it can be the government, could be anything, and that's the thread through a lot of Milosh Foreman's work, and I, I sort of want to give some examples, but before we do that Mike, because you're our resident Czech New Wave guru, <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm not so I've want to sell anyone else short but we're coming up like three four days from czech timber any of the czech films that i've watched have been on your recommendation in in recent years i've been exposed to that through you so just do you want to just sort of talk a little bit about the history of the czech new wave and where milos
0: forman came into them yeah forman's an interesting case because a lot of people have a lot of grudges against him because he was there in the beginnings of the new wave, he went to, you know, FAMU and attended a lot of classes with a lot of the folks from the, the uh, Czech New Wave films like Audition, which is interesting because Audition mixes fact and fiction. And that was kind of a thing that would happen uh, in a lot of these early films. But this idea of using documentary and then adding a narrative to it, I mean, that's very much what you're seeing in a lot of scenes in A Blonde in Love or also known as loves of blonde or even, you know, Bernie brought up the fireman's ball. So you've got this whole idea of like what's real what's been added so playing with that in Amadeus I think is very fun as well I mean obviously he's not shooting a documentary and then adding a narrative element to it but playing with the facts and figures I've found that interesting but I know there's some Czech filmmakers who really didn't like that he left Czechoslovakia other people applauded him for leaving. But some people, I think like Vera Hitov a lot um kind of held a little bit of a grudge against him for being able to leave Czechoslovakia and being able to have this very interesting career post-Czech world going over to the U.S., making, taking off, making One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 75, which just took the world by storm. He swept the Oscars, if memory serves, with that years before Amadeus. But Foreman, it was interesting, he, he was considered a cut above a lot of the other Czech filmmakers, mostly because he had that success in the US, which I find to be very unfair because there's so many good Czech filmmakers who didn't necessarily come over to the US or go over to other countries and have the success. I mean, they stayed in their own country and they did what they had to do and they Rallied against the communist government as much as they possibly could were very subversive but obviously after the Prague Spring there was a real thumb put on a lot of their backs and they couldn't be as free as they were but that Czech New Wave, man that was such a golden time of having this freedom and being able to make a lot of things and still they were very subversive they were making fun of the communist government a lot through comedy through poking fun at their previous oppressors, the Nazis, (laughs) so they were able to cover their tracks a little bit, like, no, no, comrade, we're not making fun of you, we're making fun of these Nazis. But then you get things like Loves of a Blonde or Fireman's Ball, where it talks about the absurdity of bureaucracy, and it's like, okay, yeah, we we get to see that, and he's really taking pot shots at the government, which was a great thing that a lot of Czech filmmakers would do. I haven't seen it, but I think his first
2: American film um, was it taking off? Yes. Um, with I note like in the Foreman versus Foreman documentary, the scene that they show features the one American he kept using, or one of Vin, oh Vincent, Vincent Chiavally. Vincent yeah. he's, he's that guy with the most incredible face i just wish that he used him a bit more but i love 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 him they said in that foreman versus foreman documentary that that was the one american film that he made in the style of his czech film so it's basically like a, a czech new way film made in america in english uh-huh. um but when that didn't work he was forced to do other things so i think it's a credit to foreman that he was able to adapt and still do things his way with cuckoo's nest and with amadeus and with the other films that he did in the uh, in the 80s and the 90s and he was adaptable i mean i maybe those other czech new wave directors could have been adaptable or maybe they didn't you know, even want to be they said no we're quite happy doing what we're doing but he wanted to make it in Hollywood, and certainly he had the respect of his peers as well as the love of the film going world. but damn it, you know, the loves of a blonde and and fireman's ball should be seen by anyone. Oh yeah, 100%.
0: It is interesting that Cuckoo's Nest takes place at a sanitarium, and then Amadeus, ostensibly, the entire story is being told at an insane asylum, and that we have that end scene, because we kind of forget where we're at because of being pulled into salieri's story so early and having the priest there and then when we have that end scene it's like oh yeah we've been in an asylum the entire time really does put that point on is salieri a reliable narrator or not um you know if you haven't already been thinking about that that really brings that home and it was kind of nice it's almost like a return to Cuckoo's Nest, and this was a return to Czechoslovakia. This was shot primarily in Czechoslovakia when it was still very much under communist control, and this was what five years before the Velvet Revolution. So it was very interesting that he was coming back to Czechoslovakia, being allowed to make this film there, and I think that you know he had the clout where he could come back and not worry about being kind of trapped in the country.
3: He did have a number of kind of restrictions on what he was able to do and where. He- he was oh, yeah. able to shoot though didn't he the government were obviously not super forgiving of him so
0: yeah they were really trying to undermine him quite often mm. there were stories of uh what was it somebody going behind his back and talking to someone oh it was too uh He wanted to shoot in a church and somebody went to the cardinal or whoever was in charge of this church and said, oh, he wants to shoot all these nude scenes here and desecrate your church. It's like, no, that's not what's going on. And then, yeah, to your point, too, there were a lot of secret policemen that were watching him at all times. And he tells this great story about this uh, woman who comes to him and is just like, oh, we're so grateful that you're back here because they've taken care of a lot of things. They fixed my phone out. After two years, and he's just like, well, be careful what you say on that phone, because it's probably no. bugged.
2: <laughs> Coming back for a sec to the story you were just mentioning, Mike, about the church. That's a story that he tells in the commentary track. I think it's brilliant. He, he said, because they wanted to shoot that secret. I, I think there was like the, a palace owned by the Archbishop of Prague. Yeah, that's, what, yeah. that's what it was. And, Thank And you. I see a parallel between that and... And the story of Amadeus Because he wants to go shoot in that church And someone from the secret police Wants to tell that story Says oh no no You can't trust him He's going to shoot nude things Oh we can't have that there Until foreman complete his case And allow the shooting to take place So I I sort of saw the archbishop As a parallel to Emperor Joseph The government agent is Salieri and Milos Forman is Mozart. Life imitating art, art uh, imitating life. Milos Forman, as I, I made that quote about, he loves that as a theme of the big organization's injustice to the little man. And that really is a running theme amongst Foreman's films. I mean, you've already gone and mentioned the bureaucracy of Loves of a Blonde and the Fireman's Ball, which is, as I said, hugely funny to me. All his films really have something funny about them. Cuckoo's Nest was the original one that we remember about rebelling against the power, fighting the power. And I think when Ken Kesey wrote the book, He was originally making a statement on American politics, but I can't see how Foreman wasn't thinking about Czechoslovakia before he emigrated.
0: It's almost a little bit of a criticism, too, of his fellow Czech citizens and especially the ones who didn't leave like he did. When you think about when McMurphy finds out that almost everybody in the asylum is there voluntarily and they could walk out whenever they wanted right. to. And McMurphy's the only one that's really sentenced to be there. I don't know about chief or some of the you know, Michael Berryman, some of these other characters or, or actors, but him, he stuck there and everybody else could just check themselves out whenever they wanted to. Didn't his
2: wife, who was with him in France at the time of the Warsaw Pact invasion, say, well, that's my home, I'm going back then. He said, well, see you, I'm going to America. Um, Mm -hmm. The other two American films that I treasure, well, one I treasure, the other one I just sort of like, but I'm, I'm a big fan of Man on the Moon, and Andy Kaufman is rebelling against what the networks want one of who's run by Vincent Chiavelli. He's also rebelling against public expectations. Who wanted to do Mighty Mouse and wanted to do Foreign Man. Once again, I don't know how true it is about him saying, I think Taxi is just crappy commercial comedy. It's not funny at all, but he rebelled against all that and did his own thing. I'm going to wrestle women because that's against public expectations. He's rebelling against the clean-cut image of, you think I'm a nice guy? Right, I'm going to make you hate me. Um, (laughs) And I only just watched for the first time a couple of weeks ago uh, the people versus larry flint and in a way larry flint's a very good uh, comparison to wolfgang amadeus mozart because i mean okay mozart is maybe not as nasty as larry flint gets but larry flint was an idea that people supported he wasn't particularly a nice man but he's fighting for the sort of things that lenny bruce we thought had overcome comedians could say whatever they wanted but larry flint couldn't print what he wanted in the film amadeus wolfgang amadeus mozart he i mean you feel sorry for him but he's not he's more of an anti-hero than a hero he's rebelling against the state he's rebelling against these old-fashioned notions of what's decent and what's right and what's pure and he says this is a great story. Who wants these old fashioned stories about gods and Valhalla? I want to tell stories about ordinary people, but at the same time, the first time he goes to visit the Emperor, he hears this march of welcome that Salieri has gone and composed for him, <laughs> and then proceeds to humiliate him because it's you know, it's pretty basic isn't it? you know um didn't you just repeat that thing? Let me see if I can improve it and humiliate Cellieri in front of his peers, who are all a pack of brown noses, I must say. But
0: That is probably one of my favorite scenes of the film. Of the film, my two favorite scenes are that and then the dictation of the music at the end. And I, just because it deals with the music so much. I would have loved to have seen even more of that, but I think having those scenes to really cement how great he is and just that he is able to come in and play upon those themes and rewrite something and rewrite something into something that is so known, I thought that was
3: wonderful. It's almost up there with the scene in the doors where they uh, write, light my fire. (laughs) right (laughs) sorry I had to put that in that's not true I'm sorry (laughs) that's one of those look at the floor moments I think isn't it you get the impression with Mozart though he doesn't do these things to humiliate and belittle he's just he has such belief in himself and his talent and he knows what he is creating and what he is doing is leaps and bounds beyond everything else so he can't help but be like that you know I don't get an impression certainly not from Tom Holst's performance that there's any spite or any this is new uh it's the the word new is used a lot it's new it's interesting it's new that's just what he is and he knows that so he can't help but do these things
4: you bring up a great point Bernie, talking about hulse i want to give hulse all the roses you know mm. Abraham obviously he's got the hardware i think they went head to head that year but Halls has to straddle a line because he is he, he he's very kind of childish and bratty but i don't think anything he does is with malice or ill intent he's not trying to undercut salieri socially or intellectually he has this exuberance and this kind of passion for what he does and it just it comes out without giving pause for maybe having (laughs) a little bit of just thinking about the consideration of others right and Mm -hmm. that's the thing i was taken aback with was i'd always heard watching this film how great abraham was which he is But Hulse is, to me, for my money, even better. I mean, because he really, he has to embody this. And it's somehow, despite warts and all, we still, he's still very tragic, very sympathetic because of what's going on behind the scenes. And the way every scene's played with him being completely oblivious to what Salieri's doing, Yes, where Salieri's perceiving Mm -hmm. everything as a slight that Mozart's doing. But it's not. It's just Mozart. He's just, he can't help himself. It's really wonderfully done and directed by Foreman and by the two principals. Tom Hulse
2: as Mozart has to go through a whole range of emotions. Ostensibly, he presents him as a stunted child uh, under the tutelage of his father, Leopold Mozart, He has to spend his childhood being rigorously trained as a violinist, as a pianist, as a composer and having to live up to the expectations of his father. And as we see later on in the film, he's definitely got daddy issues. So he's going to start his childhood as a grown-up man. And, you know, he has that childish laugh and he bears his ass and he farts and (laughs) he dances around and he plays word games. Talks backwards.
4: So I'm sick.
1: Yes, you are, you are very sick.
4: No. Say it backwards, shitwit. Si I'm sick. Si I'm sick. Si I'm sick.
1: Sick. Kiss. I'm my saw. Kiss my ass.
2: That's the other wonderful thing about Schaeffer's script. It's not a period piece in the traditional sense. He's using modern vernacular. From all accounts, Mozart did tell crude jokes and did write stuff to his cousin that would have made Puritans blush, but... It's using contemporary language, and it really, really works well. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about, well, the European story ought to be done with European accents, but this is directed by a European, and I think he was spot on the money in a film that we could understand in that regard.
4: It's a masterstroke because it makes the film accessible. There, I think they mentioned this in the commentary track, how more prestigious a title character has you know they have they would have more of a british accent but uh, otherwise most of the other characters have just sort of standard american accents and all of those little things make the film much more accessible. And it takes away a lot of, the, I think, the, the preconceived notion people would have about it being stuffy and dry, right? Because it's none of those things. This film runs for three hours. It's a period piece without any of the unfortunate trappings that a lot of people associate negatively with these kinds
3: of films. Didn't form want? everybody to basically use their own accents so they could focus on the character and the performance so they didn't have that stumbling block of trying to catch it all in an accent that they would have had to learn or might not have been comfortable with and like you're saying well it just that adds immeasurably to the uh, i think the uh, the depth of the performances
2: but that was a weird thing because if murray abraham was born in america as jeffrey jones was but listening to them they don't sound american to me but he did say in the commentary track we wanted to make it so that the common man sounded like an american and that the aristocracy were going to sound british okay jeffrey jones and f Murray abraham were born in america but they do sound uh, i mean look i don't know my american accents but i mean Bostonians traditionally the more british sounding americans
0: do i have that right they definitely have an accent that's for sure (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> but I don't know if I'd say
0: is particularly British, but yeah, I would say more Mid Atlantic type of accent. The thing that uh, like a Kate Hepburn used to use in the fifties that uh, yeah, I think yeah. could
3: be more mistaken with a uh,
0: a British accent.
3: I was going to mention this earlier, but I actually literally bumped into F. Murray Abraham once. He was at the uh, the Theatre Royal here in Bath. Quite, It's a small theatre, but it's quite a prestigious one, and we quite often have sort of fairly name actors, actresses there. And I can't remember, this must be five, six, seven years ago now, but he was at the theatre. He was, uh, uh, you know, uh, starring in a play there. And there's a little cafe around the corner from the theatre, and I literally came out of the cafe, turned, and I was looking at my phone, I looked up and F. Murray Abraham was right in front of me and I had to kind of swear that way. And I didn't say anything because it, it's F. Murray Abraham, what did you say? Like, Get so out of my yes.
0: way, F. Murray Abraham. Yeah. Get God a reverse
2: it, name. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't say to you something like, you shouldn't be looking down at your phone, common simpleton.
3: And, uh, he, he raged at God that he was surrounded by all <laughs> these, uh, these assholes with phones not looking where they were going. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, my uh, F. Murray Abraham story. There you go. He's shorter in real life than you would imagine. He's not very tall, man. Sadly, no
4: ponytail at this point.
3: No, no, no ponytail. Yeah, he had a, a little cap on, like a little white's cap on. Just a so, slight skew. Yeah, slightly. Yeah, absolutely. He was he was smart casual. He, you know, he was obviously on a break. shiny a <laughs> angle. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs>
2: Because we are a music film podcast, I do want to talk a little bit about the use of music in the film. Before I even go into that, I was reading in the New York Film Critics Association Awards that the, the year the film came out that Mozart came in the runners up for best composer for a film. It reminds me of that old Woody Allen sketch about the moose, where the moose came second in the fancy dress costume and the, the Schwartzes came in for, <laughs> but that's another story in any film there's discussion of diegetic versus non-diegetic music and i mean obviously being a story about mozart there's going to be plenty of diegetic music the characters all here But I like how they use Mozart's music in a non-diegetic sort of way. Then there's key scenes where I don't know how to define it, but I think it's absolutely brilliant. It was essential, but it's brilliant what Milos Forman has gone and done here. So all involve music in Salieri's head. There's this scene, which I think is probably the most depressing. or well, one of the most depressing scenes in the film where Elizabeth Berridge as Constanze Mozart, his wife, Goes to beg Celieri uh, for, please, can you get my husband considered with the emperor for employment to teach his niece? And she brings some of his sheet music to him. He's reading the sheet music. The concerto for flute and horns, Symphony Number 29, and the concerto for two pianos, and the mass in C minor. He reads the music, and he hears this all in his head. Um, Mm -hmm. If they had not done that, just looking at the sheet music, it would not have been as effective. So, But once again, is it diegetic? Is it not? Does it matter? But I think the, the killer scene, it's the scene that you've already mentioned, Mike was towards the back end of the film where Salieri is taking dictation from uh, Mozart as to how to write out the score. Mozart is on his deathbed and he, doesn't have the strength to write this music out. it has got to be composed within 24 hours and dictating each line. He's saying, right, for these few bars, this is what I want the the choir to be singing. This is what I want the horns to be singing. And every line, we hear every line as he's dictating it. And then he says, right, now let's put all this together. And we hear it all together. It's just uh, a description of what is going on in Mozart's head. He thinks quicker than Salieri is. And in that regard, he does leave him in the shade.
5: Now the orchestra. Second bassoon and bass trombones with the basses. Identical notes
4: and rhythm. First bassoon, tenor trombones with the
1: tenors.
4: Go too fast. Do you have it? Go too fast. Do you have it? it? First bassoon, tenor trombone, what? With the tenors. Identical? Of course, the instruments doubling the voices. Now, trumpets and timpani. Trumpets in D. No,
1: no. Listen to me. No, I don't understand. Listen.
4: Trumpets in D. Tonic and dominant. First and third beats. It goes with the harmony. Yes,
1: yes, yes.
2: if this part of the story is any indication, how quick that Mozart could think. He could think each line... And he had to say to him, no, 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 do exactly as I tell you. And Salier saying, but I don't understand what you're saying. And apparently, like according to the, once again in the commentary where Milos Forman says that that bit of dialogue was actually written by Sir Neville Mariner, who was conducting the Academy of St. Martin's in the field. Uh, he said, I want to get it from a musician's perspective. What would Mozart have said? I want it to be technically correct. There's more straightforward uses of non-diegetic music, like, you know, the, over the opening credits where they're using the symphony number 25, to the opening chords that we hear. We find that Salieri is going to slit his throat. Uh, We're hearing the opening chords from Don Giovanni. Very, very dramatic and quite appropriate because that's where... Salieri's final idea to ruin Mozart comes to fruition. So it's appropriate. It's foreshadowing what happens in the story, but it's also dramatically very apt. This big ta-da type of chord. I just think that Mozart's music worked both very well as soundtrack music that only we, the audience, hear as well as obviously, well, what we're supposed to hear because it's Mozart's story.
4: Uh, Morris, just to piggyback on the two points you made, I completely agree the first point about uh, Mozart being on his deathbed and hearing the music as he's telling Salieri, it's a very, very smart move. It allows us as laymen in there, in his mind. And to think that on his deathbed, Salieri's still not keeping up, it further accentuates yes. point that even at his, on his deathbed, he's delirious he's hours away from death he's still light years ahead as far as comprehension and his ability to to churn this out it's just it's remarkable and i i heard i think it was in the commentary maybe i read it that halls intentionally mixed things up to, to confuse uh f marie abraham during that scene and organically it works really well when you see it on screen he spun around in that that scene but and then the opening it's so dramatic uh, it's so powerful. It grabs you by the collar immediately. Oh, yeah. It's it's very powerful.
2: Yeah, I mean the, those opening lines. We hear that big chord, and as we hear yelling out from the window,
1: "Mozart!" I confess,
2: I killed you. We sort of come to the end of the story within the story, and we think this is not a case where the protagonist has has won. But of course really i guess in a way mozart has because a salieri the character in the film is racked completely with guilt and b if not for amadeus how many people would know the name of salieri here in the 21st century
0: is he really racked with guilt or is he claiming this in order to get mentioned in the history books if for nothing else that he murdered mozart it's that last, last
4: of fame he wants that he never gets exactly what it is Mike and, and that's just one thing before we move on I don't want to forget to say it was the other incredible thing that Foreman and Schaefer and everyone do involved is despite doing two of the most well several dastardly things really mustached moments from salieri oh. in the end i still look at him as this small petty thin-skinned man not oh, even yeah. like master villain because he, he does some horrible things to mozart and i still think of him as a a petty thin-skinned man so i completely agree mike i think that's not about guilt. It's about, to use a, uh, an American football term, this is his Hail Mary pass. <laughs> I get one last shot at glory and
3: fame. I think you get the way it's framed, the device of, of him talking to the priest as well. It's almost like he's trying to impress the priest, isn't it, with his story? Oh, God, It's not, yeah. not a confession as such. I mean, it, it kind of is, but at the same time, it's, look what I
2: did. He sees the priest as a mediocre example of his profession. I think at the end he says, on behalf of all mediocre people in the world, I absolve you. It's all ego and
3: hubris and pride uh, with Salieri, isn't it? And, it? and yet, all through this film, the
2: only moments of honesty that he gives hes doing all these horrible subversive things to ruin Mozart's life not just his career but the only moments of honesty ironically where he's telling Mozart what he thinks of his music he says it's perfect you're the most brilliant composer I've ever heard everything he says about the music because ultimately even though he wants fame and he wants kudos but he knows that the music is important the art is important the art is not just a means to him being celebrated the art is of itself. The Emperor at one point says, Salieri, you are the finest composer working in Europe today. But that's not enough. He wants Mm -hmm. to be better than Mozart. And at least within the context of the film, he's the only one who knows that Mozart's music is better than his own. Between him and God, this is not between him and the public. So he's already got the, the, at the time of the story, he's the one with all the kudos. I mean, it was different in real life, but he's got royalties, respect, who's this little man who's going against the emperor's wishes, is writing operas based on band plays, and I want to come to that in a minute. He has everything that he wants, so he's fighting within himself, and that's why I do tend to think that it's not just one for the history books. I do tend to think it is because he has been racked with guilt. He did what he had to do and it didn't bring him any more pleasure. We don't see between what happened between the time where Mozart's buried and between the time of him being an old man trying to kill himself and putting himself in the asylum. I think that there is a level of guilt that he's been living with for whatever, 20, 30 years from uh, the time of Mozart's death to the present day of the film.
4: I think you can make an argument on both sides. Like I said, I, I tilt towards the other side, but I think there's, it's fair. To, I can certainly see the logic in that. Because every scene in the film, whether he's in the background or foreground, the wheels are turning. The only time he's sort of breathless and just beside himself is when he's talking about Mozart's music. That's the only time he's unguarded and the wheels aren't turning for something to better himself or further his his status. The
2: other thing I wanted to bring up in... This is definitely, you know, considering Melosh Forman's background is that this film is a lot about the difference between the classes, between the aristocracy and the common man. There's a couple of very telling scenes where, you know, first of all, where Mozart first comes to Emperor Joseph's palace and is talking about... He wants to write this opera, uh, The Abduction of Sorelio, which is going to be about themes that you just don't talk about in polite company. And he's standing there. Everyone else is sitting. So Emperor Joseph and his advisors, the head director of, of the opera, uh, who else? I can't remember. But, you know, all, the, all his musical advisors. And they're all basically kissing Emperor Joseph's ass. And every time Mozart brings up an issue that is new, it's like he's the rock and roll guy in the room who's... Who's yeah. talked to the Pat Boons, the Frank Sinatras, who just don't get mm. the next generation man. But he's trying to appeal because ultimately the Emperor has a last word. And even though the Emperor is he's patronized by his sycophants, but you know, he's the working class guy. And back then, composers and artists in general, they were just contractors. Those guys were lucky that they got to be working directly in the employ of Emperor Joseph. But basically, if you're a, a worker or an artist, you're a craftsman. You've got money. Based on doing a job, you were not admired with reverence like happens today. Um, You were not an artist, you were just a craftsman. The whole thing about class, we see that the aristocracy on one side and Mozart standing up there, either as a peasant in front of the aristocracy being forced to say, well, speak for yourself. Or he's like a little boy. He's that boy I mentioned before, the the stunted child who's talking before his teachers and his parents Um, what have you been doing this term he's got that childish laugh there's a section later on in the film where it's been discovered that he's been writing the opera of The Marriage of Figaro which is very much a story about class because the story of Figaro is based on a play where Figaro he's engaged to this woman and a count says I'm going to take her away I'm going to impress her with my wealth and I've got enough going on in my life that I can lure her into my life but so there's this speech which i found it's a quote from the play that the opera was based on where figaro says no my lord count you shan't have her just because you are a great nobleman you think you are a great genius nobility fortune rank position what have you done to deserve these advantages put yourself to the trouble of just being born it's been said apparently that the marriage of figaro was the start of events in france that led to the French Revolution. And I think Emperor Joseph at one point says, oh, my cousin Antoinette back in France, she's... Um, She's getting very, very (laughs) worried. We can't have operas like this. And he said, I've taken all the politics out. I hate politics. And I thought, oh, my God, it sounds like anything that we've been reading in 21st century world headlines. A lot of people saying, nah, 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 nah. Hate politics. Don't want to talk about politics. Nah, nah, nah. The aristocracy see their life ahead as not really amounting to terribly much if Mozart puts these ideas into their head they'll be bringing out the uh, guillotine for him so I I, Mm. I do see this very much as a story about the class system which would be something that would be very prevalent in uh, Milos Forman's mind.
3: There are several scenes throughout the film where you know you get to actually see that disparity between the uh, the wealthy and the poor there's a scene where you know well first up where Mozart lives when he's walking back to his apartment or walking away you know you see all the kind of street urchins and the poverty the rampant poverty around him and then uh, off he goes to the uh, to palace to uh to try and talk the people with money and wealth and influence and title into uh, letting him do what he wants to do you know that's how art at the
2: time and really art in the twentieth century, sort of work, you went to yeah. you went to someone's yeah. office and begged to let me record this album, let me make this film, and you get the aristocracy or the people at the record company, the film company say, "Well, I might just be a producer, but I have some artistic ideas that'll help improve your work of art." Um, and uh, you know, what's the the most famous catchphrase out of Amadeus?
0: How shall one say, director? Too many notes, your Majesty. Exactly. Very well put. Too many notes. Too many notes. (laughs) Too many notes. One of the classic lines. (laughs) There it is. Just Jeffrey Jones with that whole, oh, there it is. Well, there it is. Like his Mm -hmm. catchphrase of... I'm trying to extricate myself from this situation. Watching Jeffrey Jones,
2: watching him in this film, I was thinking of the only other actor who I thought could have done that role justice, but he might have sort of gone too far in the comedic direction, and that's uh, Hugh Laurie.
5: Tally ho, my fine saucy young trollop! You <laughs> Trip along here with all your cash and some naughty night attire and you'll be staring at my bedroom ceiling from now till Christmas, you lucky tart.
3: Back when this was shot in the early 80s, he was definitely much more of a comedic performer, Hugh Laurie, so I don't think he would have been able to to rein it in. Certainly, he's a lot more of a nuanced uh, and versatile actor now, I think. But back then, it probably would have been the Prince Regent from Blackadder the Third. So who knows what could have been? Jeffrey Jones is leaning
2: in that direction. I mean, there's there's moments where you know he does have some level of seriousness, but you always get the impression he's not really in charge here.
3: He plays it really well. It's a fine line, and there there are moments where you think, okay, they're swaying him a bit here, and then there are also moments when you think actually he does kind of know what he's talking about and he he, he is going to step up for himself and make the decision it's a very sort of finely um put together performance i think because it just goes either way slightly would have been a lot easier to just you know so look you remember that scene
2: where he agrees to allow the marriage of figaro i think it's the marriage of figaro to go ahead and the emperor comes in to watch the rehearsal which was supposedly unheard of because he had an edict which i don't understand that a ballet could not be performed within the context of an opera so the uh, opera director rips up some of Mozart's music to not allow that ballet music to go ahead in the context of the opera. And Jeffrey Jones, as the Emperor, comes in and says, he's watching it. They're just dancing away without any music." And he's saying, "What's that? Do you understand that? What do you think of this Salieri? I mean, is it is it any good? What do you think?" I just sort of had in my head a more over the top version of Hugh Laurie doing that. I get what you're saying there, Bernie. About in the end, he does sort of say, oh, "I'm going to think for myself." But for you know, several moments there, he says, "Well, Salieri." What do you think? You're my musical advisor. Um, is this any good or not? Too often, it is a common thing where people sort of have to wonder, what do other people guess before I'll decide what I think of it? In the end, he I, I think he thinks that dancing with that music just seems a tad ridiculous, so he allows it to go ahead. Yeah.
3: Sorry, I, I was just going to say, uh, we haven't really talked about, we sort of touched on the performances, but I wonder what people's thoughts of... In general, obviously, we're we're all in agreement that Tom Hulse was fantastic. And he's an interesting actor, Tom Hulse. I never felt like he kind of had the career, certainly in films, that he could have done. I don't know whether he's done a lot of stage work over the years. He has. I
2: I read somewhere that he won a Theatre Director's Award. I can't remember what the play was, but somewhere in the 2000s.
3: I I was just going to mention there's a great film from a few years after this. I think it's about 87, a, a sort of thriller he's in called Slam Dance which I don't think gets the uh, the kudos it should. It's, uh, it's a good little thriller, and he's really good in it.
2: The only other thing I knew him for was that other uh, art house film that he did, uh, Animal uh, House. Right.
3: Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I absolutely loved him in Dominic and Eugene, which also doesn't get very much play when, you know, Ray Liotta just passed away recently. People were talking about so many of the roles that he had done. I was just like, man, Dominic and Eugene, I remember really liking that. So I highly recommend that. And yeah, I agree. He it felt like he had more promise for being more of a leading man. I also I, I like Slam Dance as well. I still need to watch Black Rainbow. I remember liking him in Parenthood. It's good. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff that he did that I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, very solid guy. I have to say, when I was doing the research on this and read that the, I think it was the first American production of this had... Oh, gosh, it was Jane Seymour as Constanza. It was Ian McKellen as Salieri and Tim Curry as Mozart. Mm. I see Tim Curry as more Salieri type than a well, Mozart Well, now type. I see him as Salieri type, but I would have loved to have seen him as Mozart. I wish I could find a recording of that or especially a video recording because, man, I would have loved to have seen him and mm. Ian McKellen go head to head do you know who took over Tim Curry when he had to leave the
2: Broadway production Mark
3: Hamill wasn't it yes yeah Mark Hamill Skywalker as Mozart that's
2: pretty wild isn't it wasn't that what Melosh Forman said I don't want to use Mark Hamill as a film because it's a joke people only see Star Wars when they watch my movie Mm. that can't happen (laughs) that's kind
3: of unfair isn't it
2: Melosh isn't around to defend his choice yeah. anymore, so it's kind of true. I,
3: though you see, you see Mark Hamill in any absolutely anything, and the first thing you think is Luke Skywalker, isn't it? So that's true. He, he was—he's doomed to be Luke Skywalker for eternity.
4: His gift is his curse, and I also read about yeah. the McKellen duo. And I, man, I would love to have seen. That right. Well, I mean, just I'm st- talking about guys who never got their roses for what they could do on screen, and sadly didn't do enough. Tim Curry. I mean, not to digress, oh. but. God, he's, he's so talented. But I, I'm in agreement, I think, with the rest of you, as far as performances go, I think Elizabeth Barrett walks a fine line quite well, being fiercely loyal to her Wolfie, being a little naive, steely determination at times. Tilly had the role, and then she hurt her foot or something. and I think she ended up doing a theater production either before or after, or... She was involved in some regard, uh, otherwise. But everyone in the film is uniformly good to great, including Jones, as you guys had said. And it's it's testament to... Schaefer and Foreman and, and the work they did, right? I mean, just everyone's fantastic in this.
2: we also got to say that this film absolutely looks beautiful. Oh, yeah. hell yeah. I'm so glad that Foreman was able to go back to Prague. I mean, something that obviously meant a lot to him sentimentally anyway. He hadn't been in the country for like about 12, 13 years or something. Uh, so going home would have been very sentimental to him. He got to meet up with his sons while he was there and his ex-wife. And that obviously meant a lot to him. But Mm -hmm. just purely for us as film viewers, he was able to use... I mean, okay, it's not Vienna, but you know, it's in fact, I think sometime in the commentary, he says, Oh, oh Vienna at the time, it looked too modern, it looked like crap. Um, <laughs> uh, not to upset yeah. our Viennese listeners, but you know, I'm just quoting uh, a lot of these old buildings were there in Prague, and he knew mm. it would be a perfect setting. I think there was only like a couple of things that they had to build a sound stage for, but most of these buildings that they used, they're still standing, and he was able to film and then give it that authenticity.
3: Didn't he shoot no, he- most of? it with natural lighting as well I think a combination I oh, he wasn't okay. trying
2: to do a Barry Lyndon and use right, all, right all uh, natural light and candles and all that but I think he did say at one point that he was using a combination of you know, as, as much natural light as he could but he wasn't afraid of using artificial film lights
3: there are certain scenes where you can definitely tell it is just naturally lit and you know it's I mean it's a beautiful looking film anyway but little kind of things like that just enhance it even more don't they oh gosh
4: yeah. That's a feat in and of itself. One of the big takeaways I have from the film, watching it then, watching it now, is how much went into making this film from the costumes. I'm Listen, I'm, I can appreciate costumes as much as the next guy, but I'm not costume guy, per se, but I was just astounded with the beauty and detail, looking at the the production value they get from shooting back in Czechoslovakia at the time, the natural light thing, the cinematography is fantastic without being too showy, just everything that went into a film of the, it's just, I can't even imagine or fathom having to be the ringleader for a production of this It's astounding.
3: Just getting to that point as well. I mean, uh, I I read a few things where Foreman and Schaefer, I think, were saying that it was difficult to get larger studios to finance something like this. three hour film about Mozart is is not going to draw the teenage crowd in you know so the fact that they were able to, to raise a budget and shoot it and do the amazing job that they did in itself is pretty stunning I find it interesting
2: that in the wake of that film's success that there wasn't a plethora of other historical films about composers. In the 70s there was a lot of stuff by Ken Russell about Wagner and Mahler and Tchaikovsky and Franz Liszt in its own style but you would have thought, like, when, when something's successful, there's a whole raft of imitation to come afterwards.
3: I think you you could say that in, in the 80s, maybe I'm reaching a little here, but certainly the sort of mid-80s onwards, there was, it seems to me, a bit of a, a boom in period dramas, period features, the sort of Merchant Ivory stuff, for example. I wonder if this was something which actually showed that people had an appetite for period dramas done well. Maybe that contributed to that. I don't, I don't know. I'm reaching, no, perhaps, no,
2: uh, you know, that might have something to do Because there I'm just sort of thinking there would be other films about composers, but you're talking about period pieces, and Merchant Ivory could very well have had something to do with it.
4: And just the pervasiveness of classical music in advertising and pop culture. Again, sure, yeah. yeah. I feel like it, it, we did see it a lot more post-Mozart. I
2: think this is like a few years, quite a few years before this, but it seems like there there are some pieces of music that were just used over and over again in cinema. I mean, look, the most iconic piece of classical music in cinema is the opening two minutes of Also Sprach Zarathustra from the beginning of 2001. But it seemed like for a time, and I can only recall one film, but I know it got used in a bunch of films, were the opening two minutes of Karloff's Kamina Burana, uh, which you hear mm. in Excalibur, which predates Amadeus by maybe, I don't know, five, six seven years or something like that but it seemed like for a while that piece of music was being used everywhere and as you say this might have gone and encouraged directors yeah maybe Stanley Kubrick was onto something classical music in
0: cinema it can work. Well, I think we can thank the play, because I want to say that Rock Me Amadeus came out between the play and the movie. Actually, I take it back. It was from Falco 3, which was 1985. So if anything else, at least we can thank Amadeus for giving us Rock Me Amadeus by Falco, one of the best pop songs ever. Hey, Bernie, at the end of
2: last month's episode, you were saying... I wonder how many times someone mentions Ruckme Amadeus in this episode. And it's taken, what, two hours into recording.
3: That's pretty yeah. good. And, and of course, it would be Mike who has to mention it. So Yeah. I, I almost, <laughs> when
0: I got introduced, I almost said, Superstar World Premiere. <laughs> <me up."
3: laughs>
0: Any final thoughts? I mean, to your point, if you haven't seen this film, you definitely need to. I, It's almost 30 years old, which is, well, first makes me feel very old. But at the same time, it's like I... This movie took the world by storm, you know, swept the Oscars, did all this stuff. Great. But I don't know how many people think about it now, which is really sad. Yeah. I think a lot of people think more of Milos Forman as far as his, like, I guess you would say, the third stage of his career with The Man on the Moon, People versus Larry Flint, those kind of films, but it's like, yeah, you really need to go back. You know, you need to see this, you need to see Ragtime, you need to see Hair, you need to see Cuckoo's Nest, then you need to go back to the first phase of his career and check all that stuff out. I won't say that I've seen every Foreman film in the world. I was actually thinking that next year, for Mike White March over on the Culture Cast, I might pick all of the Foremans that I haven't seen, Foreman features, I should Mm -hmm. say, so Stay tuned for that. I see what you did there, Mike. You have to
2: check them all out. Will, any final thoughts?
4: I completely echo what Mike said. It's an astounding, astounding film. And... Don't be put off by the right, much like I think the, stu- the studios were at the time. Don't be put off by the runtime or the fact that it's about Mozart. If you love film, you will love this film. I'm quite confident in that. And much like Mike said, after I saw it, I thought, hang on. How come in all the discussions I've had with people about the great films this never gets mentioned because to me, this is an astoundingly good film. I mean, it is mm-hmm. just incredible. And that's why I put something in the group. I said, Hey guys, like, how come there's like, I never hear anything about this film? And it's a shame because some films kind of get lost in the shuffle for one reason or another. And Hopefully we can uh, get a few people to see this because it's I just I can't recommend it enough.
3: I'm just going to echo what Mike and and Will said is I'm amazed that it doesn't seem to uh, be in the uh, collective consciousness, uh, you know, any more than it is. When Foreman died, was it back in 2017, 18, something like that? It was a while ago. Now, I I don't even recall this being talked about then other than the fact that he made it. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's a tremendous film. As as the fellows were saying, you don't need to be a fan of classical music or even a a history buff. It's just a fantastic film about people and emotions and uh, creativity and art and all those things that, that make a good, compelling story. And it's watch it, for God's sake, watch it.
2: Otherwise, you'll shake your fist at God and say,
3: why didn't you make me watch this earlier? I- I'm, I'm shaking my fist now at uh, the three of you
2: <laughs> for no real reason other than yeah. I'm wondering why you're saying, why didn't we do this instead of the
3: Gigi Allen story in episode one? Hindsight is uh, is a 2020 thing, isn't yeah, it? it is. We'd be doing a hated the Gigi Allen story for episode 100 if that was the case, though, well, wouldn't we? So, that,
2: well, that would, that would be a Tim pick, and if he's not around to pick it...
3: Yeah, maybe not then. I heard
0: you guys were going to do a minute-by-minute minute podcast on hated the G.G. Allen story.
3: <laughs> We're going to save that for uh, episode 200 when we finally cover U2's Rattle and Hum. <laughs> oh, Sorry.
2: there you go. We'll do Rattle and Hum and the Bee Gees, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band because trying <laughs> to murder me with by programming the Apple wasn't good enough, eh, Bernie?
3: Well, do you know, I, I was just thinking uh, about this the other day that uh, now you, or Olivia Newton-John has left us. Uh, I think that's a, as good an indication as any that we should finally do xanadu emma westwood had brought this up she said like months
2: ago she said you guys should really cover tomorrow oh boy um, and that's on youtube that was olivia newton oh, it, It's i think she made it in australia but yeah 1970 and it's a sci-fi musical
3: we should get emma back on and we'll do the triple we'll do uh, xanadu we'll do tomorrow and we'll do greece
2: gentlemen I've absolutely loved this conversation. I'm extremely grateful that we've had this opportunity. I'm sad that Tim wasn't here to join us, but I'm looking forward to him coming back. But this has been an absolute dream conversation that I've waited eight and a half years for. I want to thank you all. Let's talk about what our distinguished guests actually do. Now, listeners to see here will know you from earlier episodes, but Mike, besides the flagship of the Projection Booth podcast, you do have another five or six podcasts, and that's not an exaggeration there.
0: (laughs) Well, we're wrapping up Dreams for Sale, the one that we do about the Twilight Zone 1985 edition, and then, of course, immediately are going into Night Gallery from 72, which kind of is a little bit backwards. But so that is called Midnight Viewing, and that one's out there now. And then, uh, yeah, we do one called Rankin' on Bass, which is about the Rankin' and Bass uh, production team, where we already blazed through all of those animation uh, classics like frost the snowman and rudolph the red-nosed reindeer and now we've been dealing with their live action stuff which is just bizarre so the last dinosaur i cannot recommend enough if people haven't seen that you have to see the last dinosaur also we talked about uh, bushido blade recently that one was kind of a treat as well so good stuff with that and then we talked about barney miller on the life and times of captain Barney Miller. And then the one that I'm really excited about most of all is The Shabby Detective, which is yet another Columbo podcast. I think there's at least seven or eight of them out there. We're just adding to the fire. So maybe one of these days we'll reach out to some of the other uh, Columbo podcasts and try to get them on the show and make a one big happy Columbo <laughs> podcast family. All right. Just one more podcast there, sir. (laughs) Exactly.
2: See, this is the beautiful thing is now using my VPN, I'm able to go to the Peacock streaming service and watch episodes of Columbo before I listen to you gents talk about it. Will, Will Smith of The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Welcome back. I'm I'm singing that in my best John Sebastian voice because you were away from the GGTMC for a while, but you are back. You're back in bed and the show is back to weekly. It's wonderful to hear your voice. Talk us through how how things have been going down there uh, with with you and Rick in the TMC land.
4: Absolutely. So let me just say this. Mike White is the James Brown of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, think, well, you are an inspiration. It, we're, we're going great. We had to pare things down a bit. I think we felt like we'd got a little, little to David Lean with three and a half hour episodes and. Just in the interest of everything, we had to cut it down from a two-film show to a one-film show. I had been away for about a year. You know, my mom had passed, and I just had some stuff going on I needed to work through and and life stuff. But the, the flame was still flickering, and now the flame's turned up. The baby oil's back on, and and I'm back in, back in the saddle. We're marching to episode 600. Uh, it's coming very soon. We're still tossing around a few ideas as to what... We're going to do, but I can tell you our next show uh, I programmed and we're going to be covering a film that I don't think gets enough love. It's Aldo Lado's Short Night of the Glass Dolls, one of the mm. most underseen jally. I adore the mm. film. It's uh, it's fantastic. Speaking of maestros, Ennio Morricone scores the film. So it's uh, oh, yeah, it's a good one.
2: I don't remember if I sent you a message about this, gents, but I went a week ago, no, two weeks ago, at Melbourne Film Festival to see the documentary about Ennio Morricone, and uh, on the spot review the bits where Ennio Morricone was talking about his work and how he actually approached compositional styles, and you know how he came up with the instrumentation for you know for iconic pieces like you know the good, the bad, and the ugly main theme. Um, which doesn't get spoken about enough in the film. But the bits where he's talking are magnificent and a real insight to the way how he worked. But I think that this film suffered from too many talking heads and in some cases talking heads that shouldn't have been there. Why did they bring on Bruce Springsteen, James Hetfield and Pat? Watts? James, because they <laughs> the ecstasy of gold in their set. Uh, so they've, Right. Uh, Bruce Springsteen walks on stage while a piece of Morricone music is being played and they had a man who I who's my jazz hero Pat Metheny plays the music from Cinema Paradiso in his set but I didn't see any reason for him to be there and didn't even say anything particularly insightful so Far too many talking heads for my liking. If you're a fan of Morricone, you want to see this film for the moments that he's in. There are some other people, like Clint Eastwood has some stuff to say. that obviously I had to go to him. Uh, David Putnam talking about the mission. And that was probably one of my favorite moments in the film, was that whole section on talking about the music of the mission. It was fantastic.
4: See it, I still want to see it, but I lament that too, when you get too many talking heads and you get the sense it's really just to get the name recognition, right, for for a few extra yes. laro's from the suits, right? It's at the detriment of the the art sometimes. But yeah, that'll be a must-see nonetheless. Let me just say this, not to digress, his great silence and death rides a horse is I prefer to The Ecstasy of Gold. And that may be a blasphemous, but I love this tune.
2: So I dug out a record I forgot that we'd had, but there was a Teller movie in the 1970s, I remember watching it, called moses lawgiver starring lancaster but <laughs> lancaster <laughs> as moses so it looks like an italian production um mm. uh, and and your Maricone wrote some astounding music for that Teller movie, uh, and I forgot my sister had bought the record back at the time, so I've gone and stolen it. Now, she's probably listening to this episode, so I apologize, Sue, but you're not getting it back. He composed 500 scores, so obviously there was no way that they were going to get to more than a fraction of what he wrote, but I could have done with considerably fewer people saying oh he was ahead of the curve oh he was he was brilliant he was the best if someone makes a fan edit where it's just Morricone talking then (laughs) it'll be a great hour of cinema definitely well worth watching anyway there you go there's my pocket review of uh, the documentary so in the show notes I'll put uh, links to how people can find both of you gentlemen's fine podcasts and people should be listening I'm presuming that anyone who listens to this show are probably already fans of but if they're not get on on to it the projection booth and 10,000 other podcasts and the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema once again this has been a real thrill for Bernie and myself to have you two gents join us on the 100th episode. Thank you so much. So I should probably at this stage talk briefly about what is going to be happening next month. That'll be episode 101 out in September of 2022. So we'll be speaking to Amit Itzkar. He was pointed to me by uh, our friend Yenny Edelstein, Mike, who, you know, he sent me a note saying, you want to speak to this guy? You talk about music films, speak to this guy. So, <laughs> so okay, thanks. So uh, Amit Itzka has gone and made a new documentary. He's been been heavily promoting it. I've been following him on Facebook, heavily promoting it around Israel. And he's trying to get it in festivals around the world as well. It's called Furious and Fast, the story of fast music and the pataphone. So there was a club in Tel Aviv in the early 90s called the pataphone. And it became a record label and a nightclub, well, like a a band venue. And I I mean, look, I haven't gone through the film, I've just sort of gone through the trailer, but it looks like in parallel to be something not too dissimilar to what was maybe happening coming out of Seattle at that period. So getting to see something about a scene that, I don't. I mean, I know a bunch of Israeli musicians, a bunch of Israeli artists, but this documentary, I'm sure, is going to cover a bunch of people who I've never heard of before. So, uh, exceptionally looking forward to that and speaking to uh, Amit um, about about his recollections at that time. That will be episode 101 of See Here. And all I can say to close this off: thanks again, gentlemen. Thanks again to anyone who's listened to this episode and has listened to any other previous episodes. You're all grouse. You're all wonderful. And uh, just continue to be nice to each other because why be an asshole? Kiss my ass backwards. <laughs> or, as Emperor Joseph would say, well, there you have
3: it. Cheers. All the best. Eat my shit, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>